Very good. Well, welcome. Uh, I think we should pray. And then we shall begin. Let's pray together, shall we? Merciful Father, thank you for this time you've blessed us with together, for your word, the Bible, for every good gift that comes to us from your hand. Open our eyes, we pray, that we may see wonderful things in your law, that we may perceive the, the depth and the wisdom of your word, and that it may shine light on our understanding of ourselves and one another, that uh, in areas where we currently walk in varying shades of darkness, and as, this, as we experience this, Father, we pray that uh, you would enrich our relationships, both now and in the future, make us more Christ-like in our relationships with one another. And we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. All right. So, if you'll just bear with me while I shuffle some things around. I have been... Uh, what would you say, troubled uh, and intrigued in varying measure in recent months with a range of questions that have been asked of me in the way that people ask their pastor's questions, which is a good thing, by the way. This is kind of helpful because it helps me to understand what you guys are thinking. And in different ways, these questions relate to uh, the, the issue of relationships between uh, men and women. And as this uh, pile of questions in my inbox has increased in depth, I found myself occasionally turning to this book, or not, I've never, haven't picked it up, I haven't read it in response to these questions, but it's come to my mind. This is John Gray. PhD's famous book, Men Are From Mars, Women Are From Venus. And it's just crossed my mind as I put in the email today and as I um, put in the subtitle for today's uh, session, uh, men aren't from Mars and women aren't from Venus, so why on earth does it sometimes feel like they are? Because one of the underlying features in many of these questions that I've been chewing over and trying to help people wrestle with, has been uh, a series of questions about uh, how to understand one another. Now, I've made a mistake in this handout. Um, in, under the introduction, uh, I said, uh, the first bullet point says, problems in contemporary Christian marriages. I should point out this is not just about people who are married. I've had questions, very good questions, from people who aren't married. Um, and people who are are thinking about the kinds of questions that I mentioned to you uh, in the email, if you got that, earlier this week, and which I've listed down here, and uh, for which this is a terrible guide. This book, I mean, it's, it's strange. I actually think lots of people's marriages would be greatly helped by reading this book because they would be prompt, prompted to ask some of the questions of themselves to which a more biblical answer might reasonably be given. Um, but the, the clue about what's wrong here, well, apart from the fact that men aren't from Mars and women aren't from Venus, we, you know, there's, there's an anthropology that's wrong here. The subtitle, and I quote, a practical guide for improving communication and getting what you want in your relationships. 
This is not my book. This is no. This is not something to clap about, Stephen Douglas. Right? This is, um, you can you can give me an amen, but not to that. Right? If it were my book, I would toss it over my shoulder in disdain. But I will place it gently on the floor behind me. Like the the idea that we should approach relationships with anybody by asking the question, "How do I get what I want?" is obviously some far some distance removed from the biblical ideal. Um, but the questions remain. And I want to just begin uh, by skimming through briefly some of the questions to remind you of what I, I mentioned earlier this week in the email. I've been asked questions which amount to what is masculinity and what is femininity? There's a great deal of Christian writing, reformed Christian writing, some of it quite good, some of it not so good on this kind of question at the present time, and a huge amount of discussion about it in online contexts. But is there some kind of essential core of what it means to be a godly woman, which is different from what it means to be a godly man? And how do we isolate that and distill it so that we can reflect it ourselves? Um, how do we deal with the, the simple reality that Men and women do seem to communicate differently. We'll see that actually later tonight. That's one of the things we're going to be looking at in more detail today. The title of today's session is Communication Problems. Um, third issue, dealing with singleness. Um, lots of people um, would like to be married and aren't. And that raises the questions of godly masculinity and femininity in a slightly different way because, of course, one of the things you're trying to do is to be, a, let's say, a godly man or a godly woman in a context where... You don't have the kind of reciprocal partner. Uh, and it's, well, well, how should I be um, comporting myself in relation to other women or men? And, and what kind of aspirations should I have in terms of work and other vocational uh, uh, aspects of my life in, in the meantime? Because that meantime might be quite a long time. And you don't want to just you know, be pressing pause on everything, waiting for Mr. Wright or Miss Wright to walk in the door. And then when you think Mr. Wright or Miss Wright has walked in the door, well, how do you know? Like, how, what should you be looking for in a marriage partner? Uh, once you got married, um, you start to realise that, well, not for nothing did Peter exhort the husbands to live with their wives, quote, according to knowledge, 1 Peter 3, 7. That is to say, to try and figure out what the world looks like from her perspective, because it's not the same as how it looks like to you. And same the other way around. And what does that mean? Does that mean that, well, she's got to accommodate to me or I've got to accommodate to her? Or what does it mean? At the very least, it ought to mean we should be ready to try to understand one another. And, of course, for, for good reasons, Peter places the emphasis on men understanding their wives. We'll, perhaps we'll come to that at some point. Um, two familiar questions uh, drawn from the, the very explicit and specific directions of Paul in Ephesians 5. What does it mean for a husband to be the head of his wife? What does it mean for a wife to submit to her husband? Those are biblical commands or statements. The husband is the head of his wife, and he is whether he likes it or not, actually. Um, and the wife is called to submit to her husband. Um, but what does that mean in practice? And how do we avoid the kinds of problems that sometimes arise when those are um, twisted or butchered out of all biblical recognition by um, uh, domineering husbands or by uh, wives who mistake submission for 
absolute compliance in relation to every kind of request that a less reasonable man might make of her. What about cultural differences in marriage? I've had a number of conversations with people suggesting that there is something very significant to be cautious about in relation... <laughs> I really have a hard time saying this without smiling because I'm looking at my wife, <laughs> a half-Austrian Jew. I'm not joking. When people say there is something very significant to be um, watched out for in relation to marriage across cultural divides, well, is there? There is, actually, but it's not what you think. Um, Speaking of culture, how do we resist cultural pressure in a wise way within our families and just as individuals, if, if we're not married, but without being so sequestered from our society that we become a different kind of weird because we're cut off from every moderating influence that could possibly leaven us? One thing that emerges a little bit later, this will be um, next week, I think, Lord willing, is that the way that men and women handle difficulty and hardship and strain can be quite different. Um, Maybe we'll even think about that today. In fact, I think we will, actually. Um, And, of course, then there's a whole area of resisting sexual sexual temptation, both inside marriage and outside it. Um, And, well, yeah, there's almost no end of things that we could and probably should talk about in relation to that. And And all of these things have to do with our identity as male and female, different, though not, you know, we're not a different species, but we're different in some significant ways. How we understand each other, how we learn to relate to each other, whether we're single or married or whatever we are. And just moving down through these bullet points in the introduction, it seems to me that in contemporary practical theology... There is, as I said, there is some good stuff out there, but there is some which is really quite bad. And it's bad for a reason that is, I think, at least to me, becoming increasingly clear. And I want to start by explaining what I think is, is wrong with the way that we sometimes think about answers to these complicated questions. We have a complicated question like... Um, what does it mean for the husband to be the head of his wife? That is a complex question. It's a difficult question, and it's complex in the sense that there are many different questions rolled up in it. Frequently, and here's the key point, frequently, the way that well-meaning, often godly and thoughtful Christians try to answer those kinds of questions is with rules, or principles, or aphoristic norms, little kind of statements, one-line summaries of what it means for a man to be the head of his wife. So we can make something up, couldn't we? Like, uh, a man to be the head of his wife means um, uh, taking the initiative to exercise responsibility sacrificially and courageously. There we are, that's a reasonably... I think that's actually quite good. <laughs> Not bad at all, actually, yeah. I mean, you, you, you'll recognise it's a, a pastiche of three or four reasonably good or very good books about marriage, if you've read any of the same books that I have. But the problem is, well, when, when the rubber hits the road, 
when you go back home after the men's discipleship breakfast and you try to do it, how does it actually get worked out in practice? When you have a, a little aphoristic uh, or proverbial kind of one-liner and you try to apply it in a complex situation or in a relationship between two complicated people, and all people are complicated, what we quite frequently start to realise is that it's not useless, but it just brings us back more questions. So suppose I say to a husband, look, you should take the initiative to exercise responsibility in your marriage. I certainly says, okay, I'll go do that. And he goes home, and I, I guarantee next day he'll be coming back and say, what does it mean to take the initiative? <laughs> Can you see what I mean? So the, the application, here's the key thing, the application, or the attempted application, rather, of that little rule or principle to a situation actually just generates more questions. Now, sometimes that's fine and and people can work through those questions. But one of the crucial insights that I want to bring to bear on this is that the Bible itself helps us to work through the application of those aphoristic, proverbial principles to real life. To summarise, third bullet point, the solution I want to help us move towards is to go beyond merely the inculcation of like a principle or a rule. Wives submit, husbands lead. It's not that that's wrong. Of course that's right. It's what scripture says. But I want to go beyond that to see how Scripture itself shows us how to apply those principles in actual relationships. Are you with me? It's it's embedding the, the rule in a complex relationship and a complex situation. Now, just a, a note for some of you, I've talked before about this, and one or two of you I know who are watching at home, I know I've taught you about this. Um, some of you will recognise in the background here some of the work of one of the greatest living Reformed theologians, John Frame, uh, whose uh, way of analysing everything draws on what he calls three perspectives. There's, there are three perspectives on nearly everything. I want to give you like this 30 seconds on this. He calls them normative, situational and existential. And every, in, in ethics, for example when you're trying to work out how to live, which is kind of what we're doing now. This is the application of ethics. In ethics, everything is the application of a norm, a rule, to a situation by people. It's not just the application of a rule or a norm. Are you with me? Can you see the difference? What we're actually trying to do is not just figure out what does husband is the head of his wife mean? What we're trying to figure out is, what does husband is head of his wife mean in this relationship, in this situation? And the way that scripture teaches ethics, actually, is to give us, first, simple principles, norms, rules like the Ten Commandments, or instructions like, wives submit to your husbands as to the Lord. And then what it does is to go beyond that, and take us into what John Frame would call the existential or relational and the situational. 
elements of the application of those rules and show us how they're worked out in practice. And the way it does that supremely is in biblical narrative. In biblical narratives, we see the successful or sometimes unsuccessful applications of norms or rules or principles to particular situations by particular people. To put it more simply, you see, in this context, men and women relating to each other in a particular situation and either doing it well or doing it badly. And as we start to read those narratives carefully, what we discover is sometimes they don't give us simple answers. What they do is they draw us in and help us to think about the right kinds of questions, which when we think about those questions and apply them to ourselves, will generate wisdom. Wisdom is like skill at living life. Yeah, it's, more, it's more than knowledge. It includes knowledge. But it's the skillful and godly application of knowledge of God's word by people to complex situations. And what I want to do is to show us, the Lord being my helper, how to appropriate biblical wisdom by drawing on one spectacularly intricate narrative of, among other things, relationships between people. And I'm talking, of course, about the book of Ruth. Now, you know the book of Ruth, I hope. Um, It's four short chapters. And uh, in a minute, what I'm going to do is I'm going to take us through it just to try and locate it in its... Uh, biblical context to show you where it appears in the Bible and you'll, you'll be familiar with that, I know, but it's important to see, okay, how does this fit into God's story of human history, which we've just been talking about in eschatology for 13 weeks, so that should be quite familiar. But at the same time, as the book of Ruth is taking us through this a chapter in this cosmic drama, the whole history of redemption, it is also showing us intimate and relationally very subtle and nuanced interactions between people. And I want to not ignore the big picture, but have the big picture in place and then focus in on the details and the relationship. And I hope what it will do is you'll start to, you'll start to see how scripture helps us to think about some of these questions. Beginning today mainly with thinking about just communication and how people communicate with each other. We'll talk about other things as well. So the plan, first, just a couple of minutes, I'll take you through the book of Ruth, locating it in where it fits in the Bible story. Then we're going to jump into verses 1 to 5 of chapter 1, and I want to just unpick what it's showing us about how men and women tick, and particularly, like I said, how they communicate. Let me pause there for a second. Uh, Everybody happy so far? It's making sense what what we're going to be doing? Sure? No, you're not sure, because you're like, 
Yeah, I'm going to reserve judgment on this one, Pastor Jeffrey. We'll see, we'll see how this one works out, okay? which is fine, right? Um, let me then just take a couple of minutes to introduce the book of Ruth to you, um, tell you what's going on, and then we'll jump in and start thinking about how these first five verses of chapter one shed light on all kinds of subtle aspects of relationships between people. In fact, we could start off just by reading the text, because the text itself gives us a bit of its own context. So let me just grab your Bibles, and we'll read it. Um, and then we're going to work through it much more slowly in a minute. So, in the days when the judges ruled, you with me? There was a famine in the land, and a man of Bethlehem in Judah went to sojourn in the country of Moab, he and his wife and his two sons. The name of the man was Elimelech, the name of his wife, Naomi. The names of his two sons were Mahlon and Kilion. They were Ephrathites from Bethlehem in Judah. They went into the country of Moab and remained there. But Elimelech, the husband of Naomi, died and she was left with her two sons. These took Moabite wives. The name of one was Orpah and the name of the other, Ruth. They lived there about ten years and both Mahlon and Kilian died so that the woman was left without her two sons and her husband. Right. Verse one, just look with me. When's this set? What period of history? Come on. Somebody shout out. The days of the judges. In the days when the judges judged, literally. Um, who were the judges? Which book of the Bible have we found out about the judges in? <laughs> judges. Yeah, that's what I'm talking about. 10 out of 10. Right, hold on a second. And where do you find the book of Judges? Before or after the book of Ruth? Right, before. Immediately before. Thank you, Jack. It was Jack, wasn't it? Right. I wasn't sure whether you spoke. I didn't catch your lips moving. Right. So the book of Ruth is set in the days of the judges. In fact, it's towards the end of the era of the judges. Now, who were the judges? Anybody know? Who were the judges? Uh, and you could give them the names if you really want to show off. That would be, like be a very good a deacon's wife thing to do, just to put us all to shame that you know the names of the... Do you know the names of the judges in order? I think I do, Yeah. I don't want to do you don't want to do it in front of them, really. <laughs> So roughly what period are we talking about um, before or after the exodus from Egypt? After the exodus from Egypt, before or after the monarchy? Before, excellent. So this basically, it's the period before the monarchy, but after the exodus from Egypt. So it goes, exodus, escape from Egypt, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, getting towards the promised land. The next book of the Bible tells of Israel's conquest of the promised land in the days of Joshua. The name of that book is? Joshua, right. Now, after the death of Joshua, Judges chapter 1, verse 1, the people of Israel inquired of the Lord, saying, well, who should carry on and mop up all these pesky Israelites who are hanging around the place? The book of Judges is set after the death of Joshua and extends for a period about 350 or 400 years, right up to just before the monarchy. And basically, it tells the story of Israel's downward spiral into increasing sin and idolatry. What's supposed to happen is that the the people of Israel, having moved into the land of Canaan, transform the land of Canaan to make it more like the Lord and more like, more reflective of his law and his character. In fact, what happens is the influence goes the other way. The peoples of the land start to influence the people of Israel who adopt their gods and their forms of worship and turn away from the Lord. And what happens is again and again and again, The people of Israel turn away from the Lord and the Lord raises up first external oppressors to harass and uh, conquer them. And then later it's internal oppression from the days of Gideon onwards 
as, a, as an act of judgment. And then when the people of Israel cry out to the Lord and say, Lord, please help us. We've sinned against you. Please forgive us. The Lord raises up somebody to deliver them from the mess they've gone and gotten themselves into. And the name of the person whom he raises up is a judge. A judge is, it was, they were warrior leaders temporarily put in place to sort out the mess that Israel had got themselves into. And basically, while the judge lived, things tended to be more or less okay. And then when the judge died, the land had rest for a while, and then the people would repeat the same thing again. And that happened 12 times. And the first of the judges was Othniel. The last of the judges was Samson. Somewhere around about 8, 9, or 10, you have Ruth chapter 1, verse 1. Now, uh, the problem in the days of the judges, in a sense can be summarized by the very last verse of the book of Judges. Just look at Judges 21-25, which says, quote, In those days there was no king in Israel. Everyone did what was right in his own eyes. And if you zoom out and think about the, the, the shape of the Bible as a whole, and especially the next few books, you think of the rise of King David, you think, yeah, wouldn't it be wonderful to have had a great king like King David instead of all these judges and all the wicked people of Israel? Um, If you had a great king, maybe the people would learn to honor the Lord and the king will be able to deliver them from their enemies like David, in fact, did. Maybe the problem is we need a king. Problem is, in the days of the judges, where is a king going to come from? What is the Lord going to do to solve the problem of this repeated sin and judgment and the downward spiral of Israel? What's he going to do to raise up a king to solve the leadership vacuum in Israel? The answer is found in the book of Ruth. It begins 1-1 in the days when the, the judges ruled, and it tells the story of basically a young woman called Ruth who, f- who meets an Israelite family when they move to Moab, as they did in the first five verses. She marries into the Israelite family, then moves back to Israel with them, She marries an old guy called Boaz. They have a child whose name is Obed, who has a child whose name is Jesse, and he has a child whose name is David. And the very last word of the book is David. So in four chapters, it goes from Israel's in a mess, there's no king in Israel, everyone's doing what's right in his own eyes, to King David. So that then sets the stage for First and Second Samuel, because First and Second Samuel is all about Samuel, who's the guy who's going to appoint King David. Remember, and and First Samuel uh, sixteen, he goes and he says, "Well, we've done with Saul; we're not having him anymore." He goes to Jesse and he says, "Where are your sons?" And so, "Well, they're all here." And he says, "Not this one, not this one. Not this. Is, this, is this all of them?" And they say, "Well, there's David, I and mean, he's out in the field. He says, Go and get him." And David comes in, and Samuel says, "He's the one." Yeah. So Ruth. The book of Ruth is preparing the way for First and Second Samuel and thence to the books of Kings, which tell the story of Israel's monarchy. It is an absolutely critical book in the narrative of Israel's history. Yeah? It's a big salvation history moment, and Boaz is a bit like Jesus because he's described as a redeemer, and in lots of ways he's Christ-like. We'll come to that later. And... At the same time, it is a book of personal tragedy and intimate and subtle personal relationships. And it's actually 
a book of wisdom. The, the conventional breakdown of the Old Testament into law, prophets, and writings is sometimes a bit puzzling for modern Christian readers. Have you heard the, 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 that breakdown before, law, prophets, writings? As if, you've, if that, you've come across that before. You've come across it, okay. So law, Torah, refers in that breakdown to just the first five books, Genesis through Deuteronomy. Prophets doesn't refer just to the people we think of as the prophets, the like Isaiah and Jeremiah and so on. They're the, the latter prophets. So Isaiah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, the big three writing prophets, and then the 12 so-called minor prophets, they're regarded as one prophetic book in um, uh, Old Testament Hebrew tradition. They're the latter prophets. The former prophets are the history books, Joshua, Judges, the books of Samuel, and the books of Kings. The third category, the so-called writings, includes familiar books of wisdom like Psalms and Proverbs and Job. They're the poetic writings. It also includes some random assortments and odds and ends like Daniel and Ezra and Nehemiah and First and Second Chronicles. But it includes the so-called five scrolls, which are the Song of Songs, Lamentations, Ecclesiastes, Esther, and Ruth. And the way that the books were arranged at the time of Jesus, the, old, the, the Hebrew canonical order, so-called, the, the order of the books, had those five books lumped together. Not in the histories. It wasn't located between Judges and 1 Samuel like it is in our Bibles. By the way, it's fine where it's located in our Bibles. It's an interpretive decision, which is interesting and insightful. And you can see how it connects with those books. But in the Hebrew Old Testament tradition, it was a wisdom book. In other words, it was designed not to give you simple answers to simple questions, but to help you think through the complexity of real-world answers to complex questions. It's very interesting, actually, where exactly it's located. If you, if you get a Hebrew Old Testament and you look up the list of books, it will be in Hebrew, so you need to find an English translation of it. Um, it comes immediately after um, the book of Proverbs and immediately before the Song of Solomon, the Song of Songs. Just think about what that, what that tells you about the book. Um, what's the last chapter of Proverbs mostly about? Yeah, the wise woman, the woman of noble character, the one who's more precious than rubies. There's a whole book is like about how to be a righteous man, and then you get to 31.10 all the way through to the end of Proverbs, and it's about this wise woman. Then you've got the book of Ruth. Huh. Which might just suggest that we're supposed to read this narrative as a, a depiction of wisdom and perhaps of folly, because there's some folly in the book of Proverbs as well. And then straight after the book of Ruth, Song of Solomon. Why? What's the Song of Solomon about? Marriage. It's the, the uh, Solomon and his bride. Love song. 
It's an idealized picture of the perfect romance. It's normally interpreted in the broadest biblical context as a depiction of Christ's relationship with his bride, the church. And so you, you see the book of Ruth in that context, right? What the book of Ruth is, is saying to you is like, this is what the, an idealized woman would be like. This is the wife of noble character from Proverbs 31, but in action. And that's the kind of woman you want, you'd want to marry, gentlemen. Which means, ladies, it's the kind of woman you'd want to be if you want to attract the right kind of man. Can you see how that works? Just its location in the uh, Old Testament Hebrew Bible that Jesus would have been familiar with tells us something about its meaning. And of course, as I said, the um, wisdom can be taught both by showing what wisdom is and by um, at least raising questions about or perhaps even giving us examples of foolishness. You think of the book of Proverbs, which contains depictions not just of the, the ant, but the sluggard. Yeah, it's got both positive and negative. So we're going to read this again, this first five verses. You know what's happening now in the big story of the book. You know where it's set. You know what's happening. And now we're going to read it and try and see what it shows us about the relationships between the men and women who are depicted within it. And maybe we might just learn something. So, let's read it again. You got your Bibles? Verse 1. In the days when the judges ruled. Okay, so we know that. That's, that's the time period it's set in. There was a famine in the land. Why? Days of the judges. What's Israel like? Godly? Ungodly? Everyone did what was right in his own eyes. So what does God threaten that he's going to do if everyone does what's right in his own eyes? Yeah, take away their food. Covenant curses in Deuteronomy 27, 28. There are warnings of famine as divine judgment for Israel's ungodliness. When, they, when you go into the land, if this is how you behave, I'll take away your food. And so in the days when the judges ruled, there was famine in the land. So what's Israel like? Is it, is it in one of the kind of nice, happy, peaceful periods of the book of Judges when you've got, I don't know, um, uh, Ehud or Shamgar or uh, Gideon at his better moments in control? Or is it, what else what it, could it be? It's chaos, yes. It's in one of the darker periods of Israel's history during the book of Judges. Remember, you've got the ups and downs. You have periods of rest and peace, but then you have periods of moral decline and wickedness and just moral chaos, really. And in the days when the judges ruled, there was a famine in the land, so you know what Israel's going to be like. Verse 1. And a man of Bethlehem in Judah went to sojourn in the country of Moab, he and his wife and his two sons. Okay, well, we're going to have to think about this a little bit. Where's he from? Bethlehem. What do you know about Bethlehem? City of David, yes, very good. It's the city from which uh, the Messiah would come, Micah 5, 
2. Yeah. Bethlehem Ephrathah. Um, mentioned later, Ephrathites, verse 2. So it's that Bethlehem, the famous Bethlehem. So we know later in the Bible it becomes really important. Uh, Mrs. Claghorn. Bethlehem does mean house of bread. Beit, lechem. Beit means house. Um, lechem means bread. Yeah. And um, so there's an irony there, isn't there? Um, a man from the house of bread. Why would it be called the house of bread? Yeah, because they grow grain there. It's like Ukraine or um, Iowa or something. You know, it's like there's just you know, loads and loads and loads of cornfields. But even in the house of bread, there's famine. Okay, so this is bad famine now. But what else do you know about Bethlehem? Hands up if you've read the book of Judges recently. Think on, seriously, put your hands up if you've read the book of, in the last year. Come on, be honest. Yeah, that's really good. If you okay, hands up if you if you can remember what's happened in Bethlehem just a few chapters before the book of Ruth, towards the end of the book of Judges. Turn to Judges 19. And just look at the chapter heading. In your, in, if you've got an ESV like me, Judges 19. The chapter heading is The Levite and His Concubine. Does that ring any bells yet? Remember the story? Now, I'm not going to read the whole thing. Right? This is the one where the concubine is unfaithful to the guy and she goes off and he goes after her and finds her because she's gone to her father's house and they, have, they sort of hang out there and then they, they go home and, and they end up in a place which isn't a very nice place um, and a bunch of guys attack the house and they want to uh, sexually assault the men, and so the guy courageously sends out his concubine instead. And uh, she's left by the morning um, not quite dead. You know she's not quite dead because um, he speaks to her and says, get up, it's time to go, and she obviously doesn't move. So he chops her into 12 pieces and sort of sends her by FedEx to all the different tribes of Israel and says, this is really terrible what's happened here. And you want to sort of say... Yes, it is really terrible what you've just done here. Now, chapter 19, verse 1. In those days when there was no king in Israel, a certain Levite, a Levite, for goodness sake, a clergyman, was sojourning in the remote parts of the hill country of Ephraim, and he took himself a concubine from where? Bethlehem. Now, so... You want to know, when you get to Ruth chapter 1, what kind of place it is they're living in. It is a brutal and violent place. Bethlehem is not... um, It's like 18th century... No, 19th century stockyards, only quite a lot worse. You read the history of the stockyards, 19th century? Pretty vivid history. Fort Worth stockyards. And so what did he do? This guy, um, this man there, he's living in Bethlehem, but it's, there's no food. Not even in Bethlehem there's not any food, the house of bread. So what does he do? You may answer. 
verse 1. Ruth chapter 1, verse 1. Yeah, he leaves. Can you see? So I'm, I, I'm, you're still looking at um, Judges. My apologies. Ruth chapter 1, verse 1. Go back to Ruth chapter 1, verse 1 now. He leaves. He goes to sojourn in the country of Moab. Now, um, first question to try and get at the what's going on in the mind of this man why would he have done that come on tell me the obvious because there's food who said food yeah Mr. Clackwell there's food is he trying to get away from something Yeah, to get, get away from starving. Um, get away from the violence of the town that has been his home. But now look closely. Who is it who goes? Just look really closely. A man of Bethlehem in Judah went to sojourn in the country of Moab. Oh, he and his wife and his two sons. Yeah. Right? Right? Is, is he trying to find wives for his sons? Uh, yeah, very possibly. What other good reasons might there be? I mean, Sophia, Sophia said that he's trying to um, preserve his family from violence, trying to find food for them, trying to find wives for his sons. Does it, just thinking about it, is, does, does that seem to you like a good thing to do or a bad thing to do? Or are you not sure? Right. Right. Moab. To find wives for your sons. Hold on a second. Where have you seen that before in the Bible? Numbers 25. What happens in Numbers 25 when the people of Israel find wives from among the people of Moab? Uh, Plague. Why? You need to turn back to Numbers 25. You can turn back to Numbers 25 if you need to, but Evelyn's going to tell us what happens because you remembered it. Does his thing with the spear, right. So Numbers 25, they're on their journey through the wilderness. They get to Moab and they're sort of camped. The people of Israel, it's before the conquest, okay? Um, and the, um, the people of Israel are camped near Moab. They can't go through Moab, so they, they, they have to camp near it. And... Some of the guys go and find um, partners, let's call it that, uh, among the women of Moab. And they commit sexual immorality with them. And they bow down to their gods and worship their gods. And it, Phineas has to come in and, and deal with that sort of situation. Now, so you, you now go back to um, Ruth chapter 1, verse 1. A man from Bethlehem in Judah, you know, perceiving the difficulty of living in this place and how um, little food there is and how dangerous it is and he's got to find wives for his son so he decides, oh, no, I'll go to Moab because the last time we tried that it worked out really well. 
So can you see the issue, right? You, and I've had debates about this with people for years. Did Elimelech make the right decision in moving his family from Israel to Moab? Because on the one hand, you, you think, well, there's loads of good reasons why you would do that. But then on the other hand, really? Moab? But you couldn't find anywhere better? And it's interesting. You just look a bit more closely. Um, the, look in verse 1. It literally, it says, in the days when the judges judged, there was a famine in the land, and a man of Bethlehem in Judah went to sojourn in the fields of Moab. And the contrast between land like land of Israel, and fields of Moab is quite stark. And then you realize, well, of course there is, right? Because the land of Israel is really special. Why is the land of Israel special? What's special about the land of Israel? Yes, yeah, the promised land. It's the place where the Lord would be with his people. The land of Israel is like everybody's got to have their own little square foot or or few hundred square feet of the land of Israel because that's the way that they access the blessing of the Lord. And there's all those regulations. Remember when we went through the book of Joshua? Chapters and chapters and chapters of just describing the boundaries of the different tribal areas of the land and all the instructions to make sure it stays within the clan so that nobody misses out on their inheritance. Even if there's a man who's got four daughters and no sons and if they're going to get married, they're going to get married outside the clan so their land will go to another. No, that mustn't happen. The daughters of Zelophehad keep their land and they can marry who they want, but they've got to marry within their own tribe because it's so critically important that you stay in the land of Israel. And you're going to abandon that for fields, Elimelech. Really? Can you see what, what's being hinted at? Maybe. Is he making a courageous decision to save the life of his family and perhaps find more godly wives for his sons than you could find in Bethlehem? Or is he abandoning the Lord, abandoning his home, leaving behind everything and apostatizing so he can worship the gods of Moab? Do you know the answer to that question? Which is he doing? You don't know. So why does scripture present us with this question? Let me help you to see. Verse 1, just look carefully. The man went. And then it just points out at the end of the verse, oh yeah, he and his wife and his two sons, who made the decision? The man. And notice his wife and his two sons are sort of tacked on as an afterthought. You see that? How much conversation takes place between the man and his wife and his two sons in verse 1? Nothing. They're nothing at all. Just a second. You've just made the most momentous decision of your family's entire life. You're going you're gonna to leave your home country. Golly, that's quite a big deal. Um, <clears throat> And move to another, another place. Leave behind everything that's familiar to you. And we have no record of any conversation. Now, 
what are we supposed to make of that? Well, just, just note as a contrast, right? The second half of the chapter, if you've got your Bibles, when you've got, but by this point, um, the man and his two sons have died, and it's just Naomi with her two daughters-in-law, and you remember that from when we read the text earlier. And they're trying to work out whether to go back from Moab to Israel. Yeah? And the whole of verses 6 down to 17 is this big, long to and fro between Naomi, who's the wife of this man, and her two daughters-in-law, Ruth and Orpah. Yeah? And just look at it. It's just conversation, 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 conversation. So these, these three women have to make a decision. So what do they do? They talk endlessly. You know, you go back to your people. No, I don't want to go back. Oh, yes, I will. Oh, no, I won't. And it's like back and forth, and it goes on for like three quarters of a chapter. And the guy has to make a decision. It's like, mm. Now, can you see what, it, what it's depicting for us, among many, many other things? It's depicting for us something about... Well, what would we say? Let me be as charitable as I can. I think this is, this is probably reasonable. About how a well-meaning, well-motivated husband and father might make a decision in a really clumsy way. So that like, we don't even know what's in his mind. And it's as though we're being transported into the mindset that his family was forced into, where they're just tacked on as an afterthought. The man has decided to leave, and we've got to go. Now, just pause for a second and think, what, does, what is this showing us about a, a danger for how a husband and a wife might relate to each other? The, the husband rightly perceives that he has a responsibility before God to lead his family and to make decisions. And so he just makes a decision. Uh, We're leaving. And so he goes. Oh, uh, yeah, he and his wife and his two sons. (laughs) Can you see what's happening? Now, I I don't think it's the case that they didn't say a word during the process what I'm, what I'm suggesting is that the way it's depicted here is supposed to startle us into asking the question, well, if somebody were to do that, would that really be the wisest thing to do? What, what, what should a man in Elimelech's position do if he wants to help his wife to follow him? Talk. Missy Clackhorn. Yeah. Let's let Right. Right. Yes. Proverbs thirty one. She does him good and not harm all the days of his life. That's the wise woman. And and Elimelech's got well the woman that the, the Lord has given him, and it's like he's being depicted in a way that Remember, it's wisdom literature. It's, for us who are men, it is forcing us to wrestle with the danger that, my goodness, have I ever made a decision that I never even 
I thought about it and I maybe prayed about it and took advice from all my friends, but I never sat down with my wife and, and talked about it with her. So let me tell you, I've done that. Haven't I? I, I know dear Christian friends who, well-meaning husbands, and the, and the way that guys sometimes think is just by like internalizing everything. It's like the strong, silent type. Intern, internalize, internalize. And I've, I've known, I can think of one man in particular who just, just processed things inside for a long, long time, got to the point where literally it's, I, th- I need to quit my job and we need to move away from this church and away from this city to another part of the country. And he hadn't even really talked to his wife about it. And it, it wasn't like he was being evil. It's just he, I don't think he understood. He was, he was being like this man is being depicted as being. Can you see? And so for guys, right, what, what this is doing, it's prompting us to reflect. That you, you could be a strong and godly and initiative-taking leader and still communicate. You with me? It's very interesting, of course, that... Um, uh, well, let's just read verse 2. Um, we get introduced to these characters. The name of the man was Elimelech. The name of his wife, Naomi. The names of his two sons were Mahlon and Kilian. They were Ephrathites from Bethlehem in Judah. They went into the country of Moab and remained there. Now, hold on a second. Verse 1, what did Elimelech decide he was going to do? Tell me precisely what he was going to do in Moab. Sojourn. What does that mean? Pass through, visit for a while. Just like his emergency measure, babe. Um, Pack your bags. We've got to go. What? We're going what? Where? We're going to Moab. Moab? You never mentioned Moab. Yeah, I know. I've been thinking about it for a long time. But we've got to get out of here. Look, you saw what happened down the road the other day to that little girl who was born in... Get the boys. Pack the stuff up. We're going to Moab. It's like, we can't get to... It's all right, darling. We're not going forever. We're just going to Sojourn. So like, okay, um, still not sure. But we're not, we're not going to like, we're not going to stay there. No, don't worry. We're not going to remain there. Verse two. They went to the country of Moab and remained there. Ladies, have you ever felt that kind of mission creep feeling? You know, where, where you've, you feel like something is happening in your family and you kind of, it's, like, it's not like you were resistant to it. You were, maybe you were a bit surprised by it. But it's like it's, now it's started, you feel like it's getting ahead of you. And you hadn't anticipated it would quite go this far. Yeah? I don't want to keep multiple examples. We'll run out of time if we do. Are you familiar with the, the danger? Again, it's something that comes from what, lack of communication. And, you, and you, you find yourself stuck in that awkward position where you say, well, I want to be submissive and I don't want to be resentful and rebellious. I don't want to be um, complaining and nagging and I told you so and it's awful. But on the other hand, I, we never really talked about it beforehand and now we're here and this isn't what you said we were going to do. Can you see what's happening? And there's something else which is slightly... Um, unnerving Um, verse 2 they were Ephrathites 
You know the word um, Ephratha, it's like in um, uh, Micah 5, Bethlehem Ephratha. It, re- it referred to a region around Bethlehem as far as we can make out. Ephratha is mentioned four times uh, before this in the Bible. And it's in uh, Genesis, I'm going to check the references, Genesis 35, I think, hold on. Yes, Genesis 35, 16 and 19, and then it's twice in Genesis 48, 7. But all four references are referring to the same event. And it's the event when Rachel died during childbirth, giving birth to Benjamin. Now you think about it for a second. They're Ephrathites. Ephratha rings death bells to a biblically alert reader. They're Ephrathites. And you've got this eerie kind of ominous portent of doom. Not that there are such things as portents of doom, right? But it's like Ephrathites. That's, Ephrathite is like Bethlehem. It doesn't ring happy bells. It rings danger bells. It's a warning sign. And verse 3, But Elimelech, the husband of Naomi, died. Literally, the next word in verse 3, the way that Hebrew does it, the word order, the verb comes first. Ver- verb comes first in the sentence, VSO language, verb, subject, ob- object. So verse 3, it just says, in, end of verse 2, they're Ephrathites. Oh my goodness, they're from the place where women die in childbirth. That's the biblical depiction of the place thus far. They went into the country of Moab and remained there. It's slipping away from Naomi. It, she thought we were going for this, and now we're going for this. Next word, and he died. Elimelech, the husband of Naomi. And she was left with her two sons. Sophia is certainly right in terms of the outcome, like what happens next. These took Moabite wives. The name of the one was Orpah and the name of the other Ruth. They lived there about 10 years. Now, let's just pause there a second. Um, Martlin and Killian took Moabite wives. Good decision or bad decision? Generally, probably a bad decision. Because why? Right, Moabites. Yeah, it's a step in the right direction to marry them rather than just to... Right? Ruth turned out to be a pretty good catch. Orpah didn't look too bad. Not quite as steadfast as um, her uh, sister-in-law. Yeah? So what's fascinating about it is, again, you, if, if, if all you've got is... Um, verse 4, they took Moabite wives. You don't know whether it's good or bad. You just don't know. You, you can think of all the reasons why it might be bad. Moabite, in the sense of um, Numbers 25, leading you to idolatry. Um, 
maybe you might also think, yeah, this, this isn't likely to lead to us settling back long-term in Israel. We're, this represents a step away from a place where we might in the future enjoy the Lord's blessing, though there doesn't seem much of that to go around at the moment. You can think of the reasons why it would be a bad idea. You can also think of the reasons why it might be a good idea. But just as with Elimelech's decision to leave, it doesn't tell you whether it was good or bad. It forces you to just think about it. And what you're thinking about when you do that is, what, what would be uh, a good person to marry? It, like, it would be fine to marry a Moabite, presumably, if she were like Ruth. Like, clearly, by the end of chapter 1, it becomes obvious that during her time in the household of Naomi and Elimelech and her husband, who's Martlin, um, says that in chapter 4, um, she has come to embrace the faith of um, this family. Um, it's one of the hints, actually, that it, in, the, in the long run, Elimelech's decision worked out well, even though even, we can't kind of discern the motives in chapter 1, verse 1, but, but um, somehow... Ruth got to the point where she's saying in chapter 1, verse 16, don't urge me to leave you or return from following you. Where you go, I will go. Where you lodge, I will lodge. Your people should be my people and your God, my God. I mean, she's like pretty committed. She loves Naomi. She wants to worship Israel's God. That's quite good. So it's sort of, it, presumably it'd be okay to marry a Moabite if she wanted to worship the Lord. At the same time, presumably it wouldn't be a particularly smart idea to marry a Numbers 25 woman would it and you can play not play you can construct the analogous um what's the phrase what's the word um scenario for ladies choosing an appropriate husband so here's a fascinating thing by not telling you whether or not this is a good idea yet it's forcing you to think well what who should i marry like, it would be totally fine to marry somebody from a different country. Phew, says the husband of the half-Austrian lady over there. Completely fine. Moabite, so it's all right. Well, we'll come, there are some wrinkles with it later that have to be overcome and get overcome. Um, but marrying somebody who doesn't worship the Lord, yeah, that would be a really dumb idea. That would be a really dumb idea. And... And the text drives us to think that through by not giving us the simple answers, because it's wisdom, it's not law. Yeah? It doesn't say, do this but don't do that. It, it gives us a scenario which, at first glance, looks ambiguous and confusing and forces us to wrestle with it. And wrestle with it is what you need to do, because actually, chances are, ladies, for example, none of you is going to be swept off your feet by some guy who says, hey, listen, I don't believe in Jesus. I'm a drunken atheist lout, but hey, would you like to marry me? It's like, you're going to be like, nah, <laughs> sorry, right? Well, you're much more likely to be conned by a guy who says the right kind of things and, you know, dresses up smart on Sundays and sort of impresses your father the first time he meets him. And your mum thinks, he's, oh, he's so delightful, he's so well-spoken, right? And the truth is that it's complicated, right? If, if, if we just give you a rule that says, make sure you marry a Christian, it's like, Yes, tick. Well, he's a Christian, right? But if, if we give you a text that forces you to think and wrestle with the complexity of actual life, 
maybe by the time you get to that decision, you'll go, hold on a second, I had to think about this. It's not enough for me just to say, well, look, he, he believes in Jesus. He goes to church, like, most of the time, for months. <laughs> yeah? Can you see what I'm saying? It's uh, by transporting us into a complex situation where we have to think hard to figure out what's going on, it prepares us to think hard to figure out what's actually going on in our lives. How are we doing for time? Okay. Um, let me pause for a second. There's a couple more things I want to want to talk about. But um, any any questions about any of that so far? Can, can you can you see broadly how it is that this text is drawing to the surface some of these considerations about men and women and their relationships? Yeah, got a hand up. Oh yeah, Aaron, please. Do you think there's anything in the names in the meaning of the names here? Yeah. Is there anything in the names? Yeah, very probably. Um, especially the, at this stage, the name Elimelech. Now, the, the reason why I think there is something in the names is because at the end of chapter one, the name Naomi becomes very significant. She changes her name. She says, don't call me Naomi, call me Mara. And so what that, we'll come to that next time or time after that. But um, uh, what that does, it, it's like a little hint in the book itself, that, hey, names are significant. So it makes you think, okay, what do the names mean? So what does Elimelech mean? El-i-melech. So El means, anybody know what El means? Like in Elohim? God, God yeah. Very good. Uh, El means God. Eli means my God. And Melech, uh, you might recognize that from some biblical um, phrase. Yeah, Timothy. King. King. You studied Hebrew? No, no you, just, you just knew that. It's a good knowledge, though. Yeah, so um, Elimelech means my God is king, or my God is the king. Now, that, I think that's fascinating, because Judges 21, 25, there's no king in Israel. Oh, yes, there is. My God is the king. First Samuel 8, don't, don't ask for a king. The Lord your God is your king. That's what Samuel says, remember? And that, that's, the, that's the thing you're supposed to say when somebody says, give us a king to go out and fight our battles so we'd be like all the other nations. You're supposed to say, no, no, our God is the king. So Elimelech's name looks like an affirmation of exactly what Israel needs to be like at this point in history. So it looks like he's being presented as a kind of textbook Israelite. So does that make us think, yeah, he's, he's textbook perfect. Maybe, well, maybe. Because maybe he's like he's a textbook Israelite, Aaron. But maybe he just looks like a textbook Israelite. And we don't know. But let me tell you, sometimes you will find people who look like totally solid, wonderful, godly, faithful Christian men, and they are. And sometimes you'll find people who look like totally solid, faithful Christian men, and they are not. And it doesn't say, it's not like First Kings, where it gives you all the answers. It says, Asa did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. It's like, oh, okay, so he bad guy, cross, right? It's, First Kings isn't wisdom. It's, it's great, but it's not wisdom. 
this just forces you to wrestle with the questions. So is he a good man or a bad man? I don't know. Yeah, Aaron and then uh, Mr. Robinson. Yeah. 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 Maybe. Maybe. Um, and and here's the thing: whether or not that's what happens. Well, if it were what happened, that would be a bad thing. To assume to yourself the the mantle of kingship and to despise the Lord. And it doesn't make it transparent, at least not at this stage. And I don't think later, because Elimelech doesn't really pop up. Um, he's honoured by Boaz. Um, but that doesn't necessarily imply anything about his character, just more about Boaz's character, actually. Yeah. Uh, Mr. Robinson, yes. Yeah. Are there any indications as to why Elimelech chose Boaz? Yeah. Have you got a map there? Yeah. Not a very easy journey. No. Any other options that seem better? No. Yeah. It's not obvious to me at all. Now, you, you could imagine why. Um, if, um, I mean, Israel is in a, a fairly um, terrible state of chaos, so you've got to go somewhere out of Israel. Um, Bethlehem is in the south, because um, it's Judah. And so the most natural places to go if you want to get out of Israel are sort of south or east. Well, if you go east too far, then you hit desert. So maybe southeast. If you go southeast, you get to Moab. I mean, that's the kind of direction. It's southeast and a bit down towards past the Dead Sea, isn't it? Right. Yeah, you have to kind of you have to wiggle around a little bit. Um, it's not, but it's not. Yeah, it's not really obvious. Um, yeah. Um, it, it, part of the issue would depend on when you dated the book, because uh, Israel did have some interaction with Moab during the early days of the book of Judges. Um, trying to remember. Um, yeah, Eglon, in Judges chapter 3, was king of Moab. Um, and he, they were fairly hostile enemies of Judah at that time, and of Israel at that time. Um, but likely as not, this is somewhat later, because it looks like it's three generations from David who is kind of half a generation after Samuel, um, and Samuel is probably contemporaneous with the end of the judges' period. So this is probably sometime after that. Um, so that doesn't, yeah. Um, but Moab didn't have a great relationship with Israel at any point in its history, really. And that, which is another thing that makes you think, jeepers, are you turning away from the Lord and his people completely? But it doesn't, it doesn't say, oh, and this was a wicked thing to do. And thus it forces us to wrestle with these questions. Any other comments or questions at this point? I want to show you one more thing. Um, Just look with me at verses 3 and 4. This is... um, I want to make a comment about the relationship between Naomi and her two sons. Look closely as I read it, right? Verse 3. But Elimelech, the husband of Naomi, died, and she was left with her two sons. These took Moabite wives. When did they take Moabite wives? 
after dad died. So picture the family dynamic. What's happening? Was it... Um, uh, Naomi thought this was a good idea to take Moabite wives, but Elimelech thought it was a bad idea. So once dad died, then Ruth, Naomi can say, yes, it's okay, you can go and have Moabite wives now. But was it just coincidence? You know, they were too young before. Uh, or was it um, Elimelech and Naomi Really, they both wanted just to be there for a short while. They didn't want anybody to get married there. That's not the idea. We're only going to Sojourn. We ended up stuck there for a long time. The boys are like, come on, when are we going to have a chance to get married? Dad says, you're not to marry a Moabite. And then Dad dies. And the boys will do what Dad says, but they're not going to listen to their mum. I don't know. But let me tell you, that happens all the time. Doesn't it, boys? Ever been in that situation? Where, maybe you've not. Maybe, maybe you've not. I'm not accusing anybody of anything. Have been in that situation, though, where mum's told you, I don't know, four, five, ten, seventy-eight times, and she gets to the point, she's like, I'm done, I'm um, done. Uh, your dad can handle this when he gets home. And then the cold hand of fear grips your heart. And as you look back at it, you realise, yeah, I do respect my dad more than I respect my mum, and that's probably bad. And so what happened here was reversed. Dad died, and the boys are like, great, do what we like now. And I don't know that that happened here, but like I said, it happens all the time in Christian homes. And it's a tragedy. Is a sign of a really messed up family. When what you're really afraid of is that your dad spanks harder. <laughs> it's not that you want to honour your mum. So, um, end of verse 5, the woman was left, well, yeah, sorry, I missed out on verse 4. They took Moabite wives. The name of the one was Orpah, the name of the other Ruth. They lived there about 10 years. Both Mahlon and Killian died. And now notice, there's this wonderful, subtle, and really eerie touch in the narrative. You move from verse 3 with all those names, Elimelech, Naomi, Orpah, Ruth, verse 5, Mahlon, Killian. All the names. Whenever you hear a name, you're picturing a vivid, full-colour human being but as they die notice what happens to the names at the end of verse 5 it's not Naomi anymore it's the woman without her sons without her husband what's happened Naomi has become the woman and her sons and her husband have become this fading memory and you've got a picture Naomi is now like nobody knows who she is it's like who's that the shrouded figure hobbling down the street on her own. Oh, that's, I don't know, it's that woman. And you see how she's depicted? She is depicted in this peculiarly vulnerable state of feminine loneliness. Now, 
within the, the book of Ruth as a whole, that's the, the climax of the personal tragedy for Naomi that the book redeems. I mean, this, this is like the low point. And from this point, verse 6, everything starts to move in a more positive direction. But just think about the emotional reality of a, an alone woman. An anonymous, nobody even remembers her name anymore, woman. Why would scripture want us to reflect on that? A gazillion reasons. Do, do any of you fear that? Yeah, Mr. Clangle? No, no, sure. Yeah, yeah. Yes, yes, yes. Yeah, yeah, exactly. I think it it is depicting her as somebody who has nothing, and it, it's it's interesting. It's it's not it's not normative in the sense that it's not it's not telling us how things ought to be. It's alerting us to the the shattering and painful reality of how things sometimes are, and I. I don't think it's actionable. <laughs> you know, I don't think it's like, oh, therefore we should do X. Maybe there are things we should do. But may, may, maybe it help, Maybe this is it. Maybe one of the things it does is it helps us to, to think of elderly widows differently. To know that there, is, that there are elderly widowed women in the church who feel like this. Maybe, you know, in the midst of all our thinking about marriage and maybe marriage in the future and relating with our parents and how to handle the complexity of vibrant relationships, one of the things that chapter 1 verse 5 is alerting us to is, the, is how, how, how to, that we should be sensitive to people whose, whose relational... Uh, contact with other people has more or less vanished. And we could have people like that in our church. And we would be their family. Okay. So, just to draw these things together, we're a little over time, but forgive me just wrapping this up. To recap what we're trying to do, what I want to do is to show you how Scripture adds relational and situational depth and texture to its own norms and principles and commands. It's full of commands and instructions. And you know most of them that relate to relationships between men and women and exhortations for single people and so on. What this is doing is it's... Uh, sharpening our senses for the reality of complex situations and sometimes painful relationships, trying to help us to understand one another. How, how do men make decisions? How do women think? 
How, how should we learn to interact with each other better? What should we be looking for in a spouse? How should we seeking to be? How should we be seeking to be a better spouse, and so on and so forth? In these ways, the Book of Ruth, which is just one of the most rich narratives in the Bible, uh, I think can force us to think through lots and lots and lots of different questions. And with that, I think we'll pray. Thank you for your forbearance. If you're still sticking around on the Zoom, uh, then I'm glad you're here. I hope it's been helpful for you. Let me lead us in prayer, and then we'll conclude. Merciful Father, we are grateful to you for one another. Uh, We ask that you'd help those of us who are married to reflect with wisdom and thoughtfulness about the complexity of our relationships and to learn to understand one another well. For those of us who are not married, we ask for wisdom in navigating the possibility of future relationships. We pray you'd help us to understand ourselves, understand the distinctive uh, character of masculinity and femininity and all the many different things that fall under those headings. And we pray this so that our relationships would uh, be more Christ-like and godly and we display greater understanding and love for those whom you've placed around us. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, everybody. See you next week. See you Sunday. Bye for now. Thank you.